Welcome to Foothills Church Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message by Pastor Doug Peak. For more information about this podcast and other resources, please visit foothills.org. Welcome to Foothills Christian Church. I just want to invite you, especially if you're new here or maybe for the first time, become a part of our community. If you're watching online for the first time or you're doing church at home, we'd uh, invite you to be a part of our community as well. You can connect anywhere in the world by texting FHNEW to 72000. And in an anonymous way, you don't have to sign up for anything, you can find out a lot about our church. So we'd love for you to become a part. We're currently in a series called uh, Jesus Loves Me. It's about the essentials of the faith. And these are like the five most important building blocks, foundational stones. And if you take these away, then you don't really have Christianity anymore. So we used a children's song to help us remember these key essentials. It is, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And so just a real quick review is the first word in the song is Jesus, and that is, who is Jesus? Knowing who He is is critical, essential. He is God, He is completely man all at the same time, part of the Trinity. Loves, what does He do? He loves us. Everything He does is motivated by love and directed by love. He's the very definition of what true, authentic love is. Me, who am I that I need God's love? What's really going on? What's what God's saying about me? That uh, who am I really? And this is a huge question that is being left answered in our society today. And then it says, "This I know." What are we to know? Well, we are to know that we that He loves us in a personal way, not just an intellectual way, but in a personal way. And then now we're going to talk about, for the Bible tells me so. So the last essential on which the Christian faith is built is that the Bible is the Word of God. Now, I probably about 12 years ago, I was at a social event, and I was talking uh, to different people, and this guy uh, came up to me. He's kind of one of these uh, uh, outgoing guy, you know, uh, and he found out, oh, you're a pastor, where you at? I'm oh, down there by the church, blah, blah, blah. And he said, oh, yeah, well, you know, I don't believe all that stuff in the Bible. You know, the whole, you know, walking on water thing, the guy in the belly of a fish, the, you know, part and sea stuff and that, all, all that stuff, none of that could happen. You know, it's just all a bunch of myth. Now, I have a feeling he shared this with numerous people. <clears throat> and, and so, uh, most people didn't respond with, well, you know, kind of defensiveness. How do I convince you that it's true? You know, but this is one of these extremely rare moments for me where I actually find the right thing to say in the moment um, instead of like four or five days later. Uh, and, and so I just said, oh, really? I said, okay, I grant you that. So what do you believe and how do you know it's true? He says, well, I, uh, I, uh, um, and so he kind of struggled there, and he ham, hammered around a little bit, hem and hawed a little bit about this, that, and the other, and I just said, well, how do you know that's true? I don't, I don't know. So it's interesting because he was really good at saying what he doesn't believe or what he doesn't want to believe, 
But when I asked him to clarify what he really believes and how he know it's true, he couldn't do it. And so I call him a classic American. We know what we don't believe. But we say, well, well, and this is because for the last 60 years, all of our institutions, particularly public education and universities, as well as all media, have trained us to think in deconstructionism. I know that's a big word. People don't like it. It's so abstract. But it's not what you think. It is a way of thinking. And what is this is that when you choose not to believe something, by default, you are believing something else. And it's really good to know what that is. Because if you don't know what it is, what ultimately ends up is people can't live with each other anymore because we have no idea what it is we're really believing. And what we're really believing in our society tends to create hatred and division, injustice, violence, prejudice, bigotry, all of these things. And so it's so important to know what you believe. And that's why for those who follow Jesus Christ, this essential is critical because the Bible is the inspired revelation of God. It is His message to you, and it is essential. And if you remove it, the power of faith is gone. That's so important. Let me say it again. The Bible is the inspired revelation of God. It is His personal message to you. And if this essential is removed, the power of our faith is gone. Now, like this guy in the standard American today is that we all believe something, whether we know it or not. And one thing that the pandemic did, which I thought was really interesting, is it showed all of us that many of the beliefs that, are, are, that a lot of people in America have are insufficient. This is the fluff is not enough. And, and when it comes down to it, you have to ask this simple question. If what I thought I believed or what I thought I didn't believe and I don't have any idea what I do believe is not enough because you're sitting in your apartment all by yourself, you can't talk to anybody, you suddenly realize, I am boring myself out of my mind. There's, I'm not as interesting or as deep or erudite as I thought I was, Right? And so it's like, I don't even know who I am. So many people are asking that question. So when it comes to truth, you have basically two answers of what is true. And that is, it can come from within me or it can come from without me. Now, the first one within me is super popular for two basic reasons. The first reason is this, is that whenever you process truth or you think about truth or like, let's say you're like this guy, the basic American dude I was chatting with, you know, is that, well, this is what I don't want to believe, is that Processing truth always begins within you, right? So one of the reasons why we tend to do this or it's so popular is because, well, it starts with us, right? But really rational people, people who really think through things uh, further than just the super surface, they go, yeah, maybe I'm not enough to come up with truth. Because I, I admit I'm not a perfect person. I don't know everything. I'm a little flawed. You know, so maybe if I'm really being honest, me coming up with the truth on which to uh, govern the universe, you're not going to the best source. 
Let's just say that, right? So most rational people know that. As a matter of fact, you know, all science is built on this. You see, all science, and the reason why science was birthed in Western civilization and no other civilization throughout the last 7,000 years is because of a basic Christian core perspective. And that is, in science, you can't trust your own judgment. See, that's what makes science science. You don't trust your own judgment. What do scientists do? They try to do everything to eliminate their own bias because they know they're all biased, right? That's what all science is based on. And where does that come from? Christianity and Christianity alone. You see, people who say, man, I'm going to find all the truth within myself fall a little short because there's not enough of you to determine what is really true ultimately, right? We all know we have to live for something bigger than ourselves. So, we, so then most people go, well, I need something outside of myself, right? Now, there's different options out there. I don't have time to talk about all of them. I did write a book called How to Read and Understand the Bible, and I think uh, it's been so popular I've made about 72 cents of profits off of that book. Um, woohoo! It actually is on Amazon. Um, but uh, in it is a big section that talks about a lot of the options that you have to go outside of yourself, okay? First, uh, there is Homer's Iliad, which is considered in the Odyssey, which is considered some of the best uh, uh, most prolific ancient literature that was ever written. I mean, and that's why so many people uh, study it in school. Then there is what we know as the Vedas, which are the writings of the Hindu religion. There's the Tripitaka, which is the writings of the Buddhist religion. Uh, the, it's called the Three Lows, Tripitaka, which stands, uh, basically what it's all about is how to run a monastery uh, and the uh, disciplines of the monks. And then there is the Quran, which is for the Islamic faith. And then there, because we're, we're in Idaho, southwestern Idaho, in this uh, uh, book I included, the LDS position, which is Book of Mormon, Pearl of a Great Price, and Doctrine and Covenants. And then I have the Bible. And I, I lay out in a chart what all these things are. And I didn't have time to go into it, but I just want you to know that when it comes down to uh, consistency, claims, uh, archaeological evidence, historicity, authenticity, and in the end, number of manuscripts that date to when the time it was written, is that the Bible is to a degree a thousandfold above all of those other documents. Nothing even comes close to the Bible. So from this moment on, what I'm going to do is allow you to go and check that out if you'd like uh, to see the comparisons, but I'm going to stay focused on the Bible from this point forward. And that is, is that what did Jesus think of the Bible? What did the early apostles think of the Bible? And what do we need to think of the Bible if we're going to be people who take following Jesus seriously? So let's, let's kind of get right out there for is that knowing Jesus is the point of Christianity. Knowing Jesus is the point of Christianity, and the Bible is how we begin to know Him. You see? Now, after we come to know Christ and we use the Bible to learn more about Him, His Holy Spirit then begins to guide and lead us. But the Spirit never departs from the revelation of the New Testament. So let's begin there and let's figure out how did Jesus view the Bible. And at the very beginning of His ministry, Jesus got baptized. And when He got baptized by John the Baptist, a dove descended from heaven 
and it said, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. And so immediately after that, in Luke chapter 4, something occurs which is really interesting. And this is before he goes off and starts his public ministry. Verse 1 of chapter 4, the gospel according to Luke. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them, he was hungry. I appreciate Luke's statement of the obvious. You don't eat for 40 days, you're hungry. When does the devil show up to tempt him? At his weakest and most vulnerable point. When does Satan like to come uh, into your life and mess things up? At your weakest and most vulnerable point. The devil said to him, if you are the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. So the, the biggest pain, the suffering in his life right now is he was weak and hungry. Just so turn the stone into bread. Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone. He quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 8. Now, I don't have time to read it all, but this happens two more times. And every time Satan tempts, every time Satan does anything in his life, Jesus does not enter into a dialogue with Satan. He doesn't sit there and go, yo, Beelzebub, you feeling a little frosty so that you're not in hell anymore and you're up here bugging me? You know, he's not throwing any shade at the devil. He's not engaging with the devil. All he does is one thing and one thing alone. He quotes the Word of God. And then in verse 13, what happens? When the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. So it didn't work. It didn't work because Jesus had an extremely high view of the Bible, and he used it in his weakest and most vulnerable point to not only guide him, but to give him strength. Because the Word of God, the Bible, is God's message to you and to me. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, 16 and 17, Paul, one of the apostles of Jesus, said this, all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So the apostles believed that the Bible was the inspired Word of God. God breathed into it. And it is adequate to coach you and lead you and thoroughly equip you. So this basically means that for every challenge you face in life, if you want tools in your toolbox, if you want skills to face whatever it is you're facing, then the Bible is where you start. Do you feel like you are single, but you keep attracting train wrecks to date? The Bible is where you should go. Are you having a difficulty in your marriage right now? The Bible is where you should go. Are you wondering how to raise your kids and teach them proper values? The Bible is where you should start. I could go on and on and on, but the New Testament lays out all the values, all the principles, all the ethics on how to approach almost any situation you will ever face in life. So it's not only 
good. These early apostles believed good for teaching and training, but they also believed that it had the power to transform your life. In Hebrews chapter 4, the author writes these words, For the Word of God is living and active. So it's alive and it's actively doing something. Well, what is it doing? Well, it's sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and it is able to judge the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight, but everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of Him to whom we must give an account. So the Bible says that not only is it inspired by God, but it is alive and it's doing active stuff in you. Well, what is it doing? Well, maybe the reason why you attract train wrecks all the time is because there's something deep within your soul that has got your radar a little out of alignment. You may not even know what that is, but it's in your soul. And it says right here is that the Bibles and its truth can penetrate, penetrate through the surface of what you think, penetrate through the surface of what you feel, and even what you think you believe to the very division of your soul and spirit. And it can judge the thoughts and attitudes of your heart. Wow, that's powerful. Because it's like, well, maybe there's not something wrong with me. There's something just wrong with my radar, and I need to get it calibrated. So I need to go and get it calibrated. How? The Word of God. You see, the Bible is the truth outside of us that not only inspires us, encourages us, and strengthens us, but it also brings us back, calibrates us according to who God is, who we are in a world that has no idea what's going on. Now, we have to address something at this point in our discussion, and that is this. If that's true, then why are so many weird people following Jesus? Isn't that true? Isn't that true? I mean, you got some serious wackadoodles out there. And you're like, well, is that the mainstream or is that just the fringe? I just know. Well, let me give you a little principle to try to understand how to navigate that. And it's called the upstream versus downstream. Now, whenever you focus on the upstream implications of what the Bible says, every single time you are going to find an inerrant and accurate truth, 100%. You want to know what the definition of human nature is? The New Testament is correct, 100%. You want to know uh, how to deal with a broken spirit, a broken soul, the New Testament and its approach, 100% correct. You want to know how to have a healthy marriage, New Testament, 100% correct. You want to know how to raise kids properly, New Testament, 100% correct. You want to be able to find guidance and purpose and meaning in your life, New Testament, 100% correct. What happens is it's when you get down into the downstream where you see this weird stuff going on. I'm going to use two examples from history to just show you, uh, uh, to illustrate this for you. The first one is this. 
in the 1800s, early 1800s, there was a number of states in the South that had, as a part of their economic model, the legalization of what is known as chattel slavery. Now, this was different than the indentured servitude that was practiced in the North. Indentured servitude worked like this. You were in Europe and you wanted to immigrate. You had no money to do that. So what you would do is you would sell yourself to a benefactor, somebody who was running an estate or a farm or something in the new world. And so you would then, they would pay for your passage, you'd go over, and then anywhere from three to seven years, depending upon the contract, you had to work for them. And they were your master. They could tell you where to go and when to go there. You weren't allowed to leave the property. It's more strict than being in the military boot camp. And, but when you were done, you were done. You fulfilled your contract. You're done. Chattel slavery was different. This is the, uh, the uh, transportation, the international transportation of people. And they were treated as po- uh, property and they, had, they were considered less than human. Okay, And so that's called chattel slavery. Now, there was a group of people in the South who went around saying that the Bible supports chattel slavery, and they tried to make this argument. Well, actually, in Leviticus, the Bible forbids chattel slavery, very specifically, particularly based on ethnicity. But what was fascinating is, uh, like uh, our church, we're an independent church, non-denominational church, but we come out of a movement called the Restoration Movement, and one of the guys in the early 1800s who was a leader, he, he kind of became popular because he, w- he lived in Kentucky, he had a giant tobacco farm there, he's in the Kentucky legislature, but he would travel by horseback all the way through the South, and he would debate people about whether the Bible supports slavery or not. And he would say, the Bible does not support chattel slavery. And you can't use it for that. They used to print out his debates and tens of thousands of people would read his debates because they were so powerful. And so this is a perfect example. In the upstream, it says, yeah, you're, you're, you're totally wrong. And if you're in the downstream and you're trying to use the Bible, you failed. Massive failure. Here's another one. Prohibition. Yeah, prohibition. Started in the church, Right? And it was linked to women's suffrage, the right to vote. And the reason why is because men who started to drink, if they were married, they could go out, they could squander it through alcoholism and destitute their wife and children, drink themselves to death. And the women couldn't do anything about it. And so temperance, get people to quit drinking, and women's suffrage, we have a right to vote, have contracts, and we're not going to let this, you know, drunk destroy the family and I'm going to save the kids and protect the assets. A lot of that happened in that point. A lot of it started, almost all of it started in the church. But what happened is then prohibition came along and a lot of people started saying this is that, you know what? If you let alcohol touch your lips, you've sinned and now you got the devil in you and you better watch out. How are you going to get rid of the devil swimming around in your blood? <laughs> kind of weird. You know, they had a lot of pr- trouble with that passage in Timothy where Paul says, you know, Timothy, I think you need to drink some wine. How <laughs> we just don't know that? See, see, what I want you, these are illustrating this, is that the Bible is predominantly an upstream 
book. Now, it does talk about downstream things. Don't get me wrong. What I'm saying, and I'm not saying that the Bible's ever wrong about that. I'm not saying that either. What I am saying is that when you see these things up here, it's in the biblical truths that are always accurate and always good. It's the way we try to apply them in the downstream that cause those problems, right? And oftentimes, those things self-correct. Why? Because the Bible's always true. And it's been that way for 2,000 years years. So let's get personal, okay? This essential is so important because I want you to love the Bible. You know, the Bible was given to you as a gift from God, and it's designed to protect you. What you believe is one of the most important things about you, and stuff in the upstream, if you get this wrong, it just messes with your life down here so much. What you believe is one of the most important things about you. There are core beliefs that you can adopt in your life that will wreck your life. I met this young gal. I call her Leslie. She was early 30s. You know, uh, you could tell there was a time in her life just super attractive, beautiful gal. She she believed in her core vow and her core self is that love conquers all. If you just love. She got hooked up with a guy who was hooked on heroin, and he got her hooked on heroin, and it destroyed her life. And she died from a heroin overdose. Core beliefs, man, mess you up when they're wrong. One of the things that I said earlier is our society has taught us how to be deconstructionists. And people are like, what in the world does that mean? Well, let me tell you, it means you're a skeptic. We're skeptical of anybody who makes a truth claim. Look, there's nothing wrong with being skeptical. Being skeptical is good, right? It's when you say, I am a skeptic, that becomes a problem. You see, when you're a skeptic, when you say, I am a skeptic, that means I don't believe anything is true. I can tell you what I don't believe. Okay, then by default, what do you believe? The problem with skepticism and scientific materialism and atheism is that it always leads to nihilism. That's a big way of saying it leads to meaninglessness and despair. Why is it in our society that everywhere you look, you know, cancer deaths going down, heart disease deaths going down, uh, all these other diseases going down. People are getting healthier throughout the globe, but in America there's only one thing where it's going up, 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 and up. And you know what that is? Death by suicide. Because deconstructionism always leads to nihilism. I'm skeptic of everything. When some people come to me and say, well, I'm, I'm skeptical, I always ask them, well, are you skeptical of your skepticism? Maybe that's the problem. There's another belief that we have, uh, particularly among young people today are really struggling with this, and that is, no matter what, what I do, it doesn't really matter. It doesn't really matter, does it? You know, if I do well here, or I try, it doesn't matter. It all turns out the same. No, it matters. You know, if I go out to college and I, you know, decide to get in the wild Sodom and Gomorrah lifestyle for a while, everybody goes out, sows their wild oats for a while, and then they get serious about life. That doesn't really matter, does it? Yeah, it matters. Hey, going to Vegas, you know. What happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. No, what happens in Vegas stays with you for the rest of your life. 
and it's probably on the internet somewhere. <laughs> so what you do does matter. Here's another thing. Sometimes we believe things about ourselves that aren't true. When I, when I uh, first went to college in my undergrad, I was probably about 19 years old. My parents had just split up, and I'd moved my mom to Kansas City, and there was a bunch of other things going on in my life. I, I was not in a good place, and I was really struggling with uh, depression and meaninglessness and just really struggling with stuff. And there was a guy at college there, and you know, I was trying to figure out, I don't know what to do. I'm not dealing with this very well. And he said, well, if I were you, I'd just read Ephesians 1. And I'm like, what? He goes, I just read Ephesians 1. So I said, okay, I'm going to read Ephesians 1. So I started reading Ephesians 1, and I read it over and over and over again. And about six weeks later, I started to realize to myself, man, how could I be depressed when I, if I believe this stuff? How can I be depressed when I, I'm reading that I am the center of God's cosmic plan before time, before the very foundation of the world? He predestined that I could become a child of His. Uh, how can I feel depressed when I know that Jesus Christ, God Himself, came to this earth because He loves me so much that He was going to die for me to make me right with God? That there's no unrighteousness between me and God anymore because of the blood of Jesus Christ. And I have been given the greatest inheritance you could ever imagine. The, every spiritual blessing on heaven and on earth is mine. Oh yeah, I'm feeling pretty good about that right now. How can I how can I deny that I'm not only God's blessed child that's been made new by the blood of Christ and been set apart that anything that uh, he could do more than I could even imagine exceedingly beyond that for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. I am his workmanship, it says in chapter 2, created for good works. God, he has a purpose for my life. I may not know what it is right now, but I need to get busy and figure it out because this wallowing around in self-pity is a big waste of time. Let's get out there and, man, it gets you going. And after reading that for six weeks, there were things in my life that I just couldn't believe anymore because they were all false. I can't tell you today how many people have a poor self-image. They believe lies about themselves. When we, all the men get together and go up to boot camp every year, we listen to a guy, John Eldridge, who says, man, guys, I want to awaken your masculine heart. And the biggest difficulty in doing that is you've made agreements with the devil. And until we get rid of those, you're not going to awaken your masculine heart. Man, what you believe is one of the most important things about you. And the only way to change what you believe, know what to change about what you believe, how to fix what you believe, is all right here. The Bible is God's revelation to you, his word to you. He not only wants to protect you, he wants to grow you. Right now in our society, the biggest epidemic going on is not COVID. It's anxiety, depression, and meaninglessness. The number one issue for millennials and Gen Z is anxiety and depression. Why is that? Well, first and foremost, you're not weaker than your ancestors. You're not lesser than your ancestors. And let me let you in on a truth bomb. You cannot make the case with a straight face that you have it harder than your grandparents. <laughs> Ain't going to happen. You can't be a rational person and make that case. So why is it? The depression, the anxiety, the meaninglessness is real. 
You know why it's so prevalent in our society today amongst these groups of people? Maybe beyond that? It's because the primary purpose of parenting and raising children is to prepare them for the world that actually exists. But the bureaucracies, the institutions have raised these kids to believe in a world that does not exist. So when they become adults, their belief interacts with reality and that creates anxiety, depression, and meaningless because it is a contradiction. That is the truth. The Bible... The Bible corrects all that so it can grow you. It can say, this is the world in which you live, and this is what you can do about it. This is how you prepare yourself. This is how you get thoroughly equipped for every challenge you're going to face. It's right here for you, been around long time, and by the way, it's a number one bestseller just for you. Finally, the Bible heals us. Man, are you in need of spiritual healing? Maybe you need a therapist or a counselor. I don't have a problem with that. We use them all the time. But if it doesn't come from the gospel truth that heals your soul first, everything else is an exercise in futility. The gospel message is a message of how Jesus Christ, God himself, heals your soul. Not only spiritually healing, but it will heal you emotionally. The truth of being loved by God himself, Jesus Christ, and his desire to heal and restore you is overwhelmingly powerful because you cannot become who you are meant to become without his presence in your life. You can be successful, you can be prosperous, but you will never be complete. And my hope and dream for you is to be complete. And that's why you need Jesus. And that's why you need to read the Bible. After the end of every series, we have a blessing. And so this series is Jesus, God himself, loves, that's who he is and what he does, me. I am in need of his redeeming love because I'm flawed. This I know. I need to know this not just in my head, but in my heart. Personally, I need to know Jesus, for the Bible tells me so. This is a truth that was given to me outside of myself, and I choose to believe it because it is reality. In the blessing, I'd like you to just sit and receive this blessing, and then at Uh, We'll listen to the host, and then we'll stand for a closing prayer. You know, my blessing for you today is that you know who you really are and why you are on this planet, why you exist. I bless you with the knowledge that the God of the universe, the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the creator of all that is and ever will be, Jesus Christ himself, has made you the center of his cosmic plan. I bless you with the knowledge that he loves you unequivocally. Everything he has done, everything he seeks to do, everything is motivated by, infused with, and bonded together with love and a love for you. 
in this lost and broken world. You cannot escape its taint. Even if your best intentions, hopes and dreams and aspirations as you pursue them will be tainted by the evil that exists in this world. There's no way to escape it, but I bless you with something greater than that truth, and that is the knowledge that in spite of this evil and this taint, Jesus Christ did what he had to do in order for you to be set free. We cannot be free without his redemptive love, healing us, restoring us, or transforming us. So today, I challenge you with this blessing. There comes a time in every person's life where they must know this is who I am. This is what I choose to believe about myself and about the world in which I live. I choose it because I know it's true. And I know it's true because I didn't come up with it myself. It was revealed to me. And I must have a conviction about this. And these convictions will drive me throughout life. It's my choice, my time, and that time to live this way is right now. And I choose. I want you to choose to believe that you are not enough to come up with your own truth and that you know there is something more. You know because you feel it and sense it because you know you're not a sack of cells. You're a living soul. And so today I want you to bless yourself by saying, I choose Jesus. I believe who he is. I believe who he says I am. I believe his definition of reality and it is on this rock and this rock alone, this firm foundation that I will build a life worth living. There's going to be obstacles, you bet, challenges by the millions, setbacks and failures, but my foundation will never be shaken. And I pray, I pray that you come to know this in the very marrow of your bones. It is who you are when you're asleep and when you're awake, when you're hungry and when you're full, when you're lonely or when you're in love. I pray you always know who you are because you know Jesus. My blessing is that now you know that forever, that Jesus loves you. This you know for the Bible tells you so. Thank you for listening to this Sermon of the Week. Video footage of this sermon and others can be found on foothills.org.